You know, I love Jesus Christ. He's my Savior and my Lord, and I love him. I want us to pray together, and then we're going to get into our scripture. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. Father, I thank you for the opportunity you give us to worship Jesus Christ. For what he has done for us. Father, we are grateful for him saving us. We're thankful, Father, that his blood washed away our sin. Father, that truly love lifted me. Father, thank you for loving us that much. Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit would quicken our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, and that your Holy Spirit would convict us. Lord, I pray that you would bring great repentance upon your people. I pray, Father, that you would help us as we seek you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this morning, I want to, I want to start a, a short series, if we might, on the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, this seems to be a resurrection season. We celebrated Easter last week, the resurrection of Christ. And I want to spend just a little bit of time the next few weeks on um, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And I have a question for you this morning, and I want to ask you this question. I would ask, what kind of risks, what kind of risks are you willing to take in order to see others set free? What kind of risks are you willing to take in order to let see others be set free? You know, in the synoptic gospels, we're going to be in John 11, by the way. In the synoptic gospels, those gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the account of the cleansing of the temple was actually what started the the, the rage, if you will, against Jesus and, and led up to the, the, uh, the, you know, Jesus' death. But in the Gospel of John, the event that led up to Jesus' death and his trial and all of that was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That was a turning point in the book of John. See, I believe that there's more to this than this narrative of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead uh, than most people realize. Because this story, it demonstrates the true nature of Christ. When Christ is around, those things that are dead come to life. When Christ is around, those, those things that are broken get healed. That's the nature of Christ. And this story demonstrates the true nature of him. And, and this record exemplifies his authority. His authority over sin and his authority over death. See, this account is about the manifestation of his far-reaching power. The power to reach into the grave and raise up the dead. 
See, while Jesus' disciples were perplexed to understand what goes on, Jesus was very clear all through the process. Jesus knows that Lazarus is sick, that he's ill, that he will die, and that Jesus will raise him from the dead. I mean, to heal a man that is sick, that glorifies God. But to raise a man that has been in the grave, in the tomb, for four days. You see, the, in Jewish thought, they thought that the, the spirit hovered around for three days. So this is on the fourth day. When you raise a man that has been dead for four days, see, Jesus was cutting through all of their false belief. And he was really letting them know that I am the great I am. I am the Messiah. I can do all things. See, I believe that this story is more about... This is a story that is more about... um, You know, it's more about than Jesus just having power and authority to raise the natural body. It demonstrates his power to bring one from the very depths of sin's bondage. I mean, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And because we sin, we earn wages. Just like you do at your job. Just like you do as you, as you work. You earn wages. And our sin earns us wages. And the wages of sin is death. But listen. No one. No one is too far from the Lord's reach. No one is too far from our Lord Jesus' ability to reach to the bottom of the slimy pit and pluck us out. None of us are able to go far enough that we cannot be reached by God's love. We need to understand that because we tend to write people off. We tend to say they are beyond help. No one is beyond Christ's reach. See, the irony here is that the revelation of Jesus as the giver of life will lead to his death. And there's several lessons out of this chapter, and that's why I want to spend the next two or three weeks on it. And I want to give you three of those this morning. Let's read together in John chapter 11. And I want to read uh, down through verse 16. So it's a little bit longer of of a passage than we normally have. But I I want to read together with with you. And um, beginning in verse 1 of John 11, it says this. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. 
if I flip the page, that is found in John 12, verse 3. John 11, verse 3 says, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. See, Lazarus is an abbreviation of the name Eleazar, which means God helps. God helps. Lazarus of Bethany. He's the only recipient of a miracle in the book of John that has a proper name. He's the only one that is actually named. Now Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that their brother was sick. And he didn't go immediately, but he waited. And in Jesus' mind, it was clear that Lazarus' sickness was to demonstrate the glory of God that his son, Jesus, may be glorified. He says that in the Word. See, in verses 3 and following, Lazarus' sisters, they sinned for Jesus. Jesus had stayed in their home and, and they enjoyed the fellowship with him on many previous occasions. What I want you to see here, first of all, is that Christ loves you. That Christ loves you. In verse 3 it says, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. See, they'd come to love Christ. They'd come to realize his love for them. Because he stayed in their home, the mention of each one of their names shows that Jesus has a personal relationship with each one of these. He knows who they are. 
He had a personal relationship with them, and he mentions them individually because he knew who they were because of that personal relationship. I think that's big stuff. Because Jesus had stayed with them on several occasions. And I believe that Jesus stayed in their home because he was invited to stay in their home. He didn't just stop by and said, the master has need of this room. They invited him to come because they had a personal relationship with him. He stayed in their home. They had enjoyed and returned his fellowship Now, here's a salient point for you, one of those salty points. Those who fellowship with Jesus become aware of his love. When you have that relationship with Christ, you become aware of just how much he loves you. See, Christ loves us. Jesus had passed through Bethany many times. And it was Lazarus and his sisters who invited him to come into his home, their home, and into their lives. They knew Jesus as a friend, one that sticks closer than a brother. They knew Jesus in that way. You know, it's one thing to know about someone. It's another thing to know them. To know them well enough. To love them, to fellowship with them, to have them in your home. I may know about a lot of people, but I may not know people. Jesus knew Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he loved them. Notice the invitation that Martha and Mary sent to Jesus. In verse 3, it says they sent word to him. Kind of reminds me of prayer. As we pray, we are sending word to Jesus. We are sending word to the Father through the Holy Spirit. We have a need here, Lord. Something's going on here and we need some help. They sent word to Jesus. Why did they send word to Jesus? Because they knew him well enough to know that Jesus could fix the problem that they had. They knew him well enough to know that if he knew they were struggling, he would come to their aid. See, those who are in fellowship with Jesus realize their love that he has for them. I think this is big stuff. Because they recognize that. They sent word to him. And anyone who invites Jesus into their heart and into their life will come to know that Jesus loves them. You will not be disappointed. Because Jesus loves us. (laughs) Romans 5, 8 tells us that but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves you. He hung on that cross and died 
While you were still in your sin, while you were still in that darkness, while you were still bound by the enemy, he hung on the cross and died for you because he loves you. Those who come to know Jesus recognize and realize how great his love is for us. Notice how the actions of Jesus following this invitation, (laughs) how they go down. I mean, at first it it sounds very strange to us. Look at verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. Verse 6, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's strange to us. Why wouldn't he drop what he's doing and run to help? That, that just something is out of place. He waited two more days. We don't, we don't get that. It sounds very strange, but when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he didn't rush over to Bethany to check on him or to heal him. Even stranger, he delayed his trip for two more days. See the delay. The delay of Jesus' response to Mary and to Martha could be connected with the feeling of abandonment that some people in our community feel. They're expecting the church to do something. And we wait. And we wait. And we wait. Why aren't they doing something about it? Where's Jesus at? Isn't he supposed to show up? We sent word. We told him the predicament that we're in. What's going on? Many in our community feel the same way. Where's the church at in all of this? Where are the believers? Where are the ones who are supposed to bring the hope? Don't they care? Don't they care that our world is in a mess? Don't they care that we feel lonely? Don't they care that we we are just here by ourselves? Think about this. Has God trusted you with silence? There's a theological term for this. You know, when you're knocking at heaven's door and it seems like no one is answering? Deus absconditus, the God who is not there. Has God trusted you with silence? You know, there are times where we recognize that this silence has a big meaning. I mean, God's silences are sometimes His answers. Think of those empty days of absolute silence in the home in Bethany. The time when Jesus was not there. And they were waiting for him. Is there anything like that in your life that compares? 
Can God trust you like that? Or are you still asking for a visible answer? I mean, think about it. When we can't trace his hand, we should trust his heart. God is a great God. A good, good father. And maybe his silence is he's working it out for your good. And we just need to trust him more. I mean, God will give you the blessings you ask if you will not go any further without them. But his silence is the sign that he is bringing you into a greater understanding of himself. But we don't like the silence because we're impatient. We're impatient people. We want it now. We want it yesterday. We don't want to wait for anything. And maybe the silence is him leading you into greater understanding of himself, of who he is. Don't be so impatient. Sit and wait. Wait upon the Lord. I mean, how could he have loved them so much but wait so long to meet their request? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus had something big in mind for this family. He had something huge in mind for this family. And see, we want, we want, give it to me now, Lord, give it to me now. And he might be saying, you wait, child. You wait until you see the provision of the Lord. And you're going to say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. But we're so impatient. We're so impatient. I mean, Jesus wanted to give them something big. He wanted something that would reveal his lordship. That I am the great I am. That I am the promised Messiah. That I am who I say I am. I am, I am, I am. He's wanting to let them know that. Not only to this family, but also to all of those other unbelieving Jews that did not believe that he was the Messiah. Let me show you what can, I can do. Let me show you the power of God. Let me show you God's glory. Amen. Be patient. Let me show it to you. I mean, sometimes we need to see that Jesus has authority and power over all. Because we begin to take him for granted. We think that he belongs to me. (laughs) He doesn't belong to me. I belong to him. See, I believe it was out of his great love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus that he purposely delayed his trip to Bethany. He was about to show this untraditional family a deeper love than they had ever known before. They were going to have the opportunity to witness his power over the difficult enemies of the grave and death. They were going to witness his power. I mean, what seemed like a tragedy at first glance would turn out to be a great privilege. 
Verse 4, Jesus said this. He said, this sickness is not to end in death. It's not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. God was going to give this family the first-hand experience of his power. To bring someone back to life, to bring someone from the grave. And after the delay, Jesus prepares to go to Bethany. He sets out, he says, let's go. He finally departs for Bethany, only to be stopped by the disciples. Just a short while before, Jesus had been run out of that area by the Jews. They, they accused him of blaspheming because he said that um, calling himself God. And they wouldn't listen to him. Nor did they recognize that he performed miracle after miracle after miracle. See, he had shown them face to face who he was. He wasn't skirting around trying to, trying to get away with anything. But they wouldn't listen. They even tried to stone him. If you look back in chapter 10, verse 31, it talks about that. But they had no evidence that he had done anything wrong. But they tried to stone him. And his disciples remind him of that. Verse 7, it says, Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? <laughs> Why would you go back? They want to kill you. They want to take you out. Why would you go back? You know, there's an old Irish proverb. It says, Never doubt in the darkness what you believed in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what you believed in the light. But notice the response that Jesus gave, verse 9. He says, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I mean, there is an average of twelve hours of daylight. Some times of the year, it's not that much. And other times of the year, it's more. But a person has to work while it's day. My dad used to put it this way. Make hay while the sun's shining. Do what you're supposed to do during the day. Because night is coming. When we can't work any longer. See, Jesus called himself the light of the world. He says, you must work. You must walk. In the day, because we see the light of the world. We're able to do that. But you see, Jesus also had work he must do. He was sent to light our paths and the paths of everyone in the world so that we would not stumble and that we would not fall. And the implication is this. Is while we walk under God's direction, while you remain close to Jesus, the light of the world, your path will be clear. You'll be able to see where you are going. But when you get away from that light, when you get away from the light of men, the light of the world, Jesus, then you will be walking in darkness. Someone has a need in Bethany. Jesus says, I'm going to do the works of my Father, and I must go. <laughs> so the second lesson is this. We must go with Christ. 
while the door of opportunity remains open for us. We must go with Christ while the door of opportunity remains open to us and for us. See, we wrongly assume that we will always have the door of opportunity open to us because we live in a land of opportunity. But folks, when the the community around us, when the neighborhood is looking to us for answers, the door of opportunity is open in the neighborhood. We need to go with Christ while the door of opportunity is open. The door of opportunity may be in our nation. The door of opportunity may be around the world. See, what I want you to see is that we need to go with Christ. And right now, the door of opportunity is open in, let's say, Tanzania. We as a church have sent a team there and we recognize they are evangelizing on mountains in Tanzania, unreached people group. We have opportunity to be involved in that and the door of opportunity is wide open right now. It may not always be wide open. So we must go with Christ while the door of opportunity is open. See, we wrongly assume that it's always going to be open, but it won't. There's opportunity available. Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus is asleep and that he's going to Bethany to wake him up. But they miss the point. Look at verse 12. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. They don't get it. Well, if he's sleeping, he's going to get better. Really? I mean, Jesus taught us. He said, let your light shine. Let your light shine in such a way that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. The door of opportunity is open. Let your light shine. Do the good deeds now while the door of opportunity is open. If it takes mowing your neighbor's yard, if it takes sitting with their children, if it takes sharing the gospel with them, let them see your good deeds. Let your light shine so that that they may see your good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. See, this is a tricky issue because our deeds should point people to God. But if we're not careful, people may see the deeds, and then the deeds are the end of it. Oh, they just did something nice for me. Our good deeds are to point people to God. That's what we're supposed to do. But we need to be clear, because if we are not, they may point people to us and say, look how good we are. But the only thing good that you see in me is the Father. It comes from him. The the point is, is that it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about our heavenly father and glorifying him. And I really don't want any credit for anything that I do here on earth. That's not why I'm doing it. 
I'm doing it for him and for his glory. You see, we need to clear the fog and point people to God through his son, Jesus. That's what the Bible calls evangelism. Telling others about what Jesus Christ has done for you. These disciples, they don't get it. I mean, look at verse 12. He says, he said, they said, well, if he's fallen asleep, he will, he will recover. And Jesus had said that. But then he had to tell him, I'm not talking about literal sleep. Come on, guys. Stick with me. Work with me, people. I mean, I love this because he says, Jesus said to them plainly, they're not even in Bethany yet. How does Jesus know Lazarus is dead? That's right. Because he's Jesus. He is God. He knows that Lazarus is dead. He's not talking about him falling asleep. He's saying he has fallen asleep, but he's referring to him being dead. He says, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you might believe. I mean, he didn't get mad. He didn't get upset. They're acting like, well, maybe Lazarus is just taking a nap. He's going to wake up. But he already knew that Lazarus was dead. You know, Max Lucado, he says this. He says, the grave unearths our view of God. How often have we heard, God, if you existed, my father wouldn't have died. Or if you had answered my prayers, my, my life wouldn't be empty. Or if you cared, my mother wouldn't have developed cancer. Maybe, just maybe, God is waiting for something. Maybe he's waiting for something to further the gospel. Maybe he's waiting for the right time. How can I bring the most God, glory to God the Father? Maybe it's a kairos time that he's waiting for. God's special time. Maybe, maybe God is waiting for us to have the right attitude. Maybe we've got an attitude toward God. And he's saying, until you get right, until you get that attitude right, I'm not going to work on the, your behalf in this matter. Maybe there's sin in our life that we're coddling. We don't want to give it up. And he says, until you get rid of this, we're not moving on. And we know it, and we choose not to do it. See, these disciples were about to become familiar with the true meaning of love lifted me. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply, stained within, sinking, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea Heard my despairing cry. From the waters he lifted me. Now safe am I. 
See, these disciples were about to experience that firsthand, what it means to be raised by Jesus. And let me tell you, when Jesus awakens you, when he quickens your spirit, nothing can hold you back from that new life. When Jesus says yes, there is nothing that can say no to Jesus. Not you, not your rebellion, not your heart. Nothing can say no. Not your addiction, not your loneliness. When Jesus says yes, nothing can say no. I love that about my Lord. And the the reality is, is we need to be praying for the souls of men and women. Because when Jesus says yes, nothing can say no. See, the strengthening of the disciples' faith is always a priority for Jesus. Verse 16 says, Therefore, Thomas, who's called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. The third thing I want you to see this morning is that we must die with Christ. We must die with Christ. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. To deny yourself, to pick up your cross daily, and follow me. Jesus knew he was going to die. He knew what the outcome of all of this would be. And really what he's saying to each one of us is we need to die up front. We need to die up front so we can truly live. What a blessing that is. When you go ahead and die up front so that now you have the freedom to live. Because when Christ raises you, you are truly risen indeed. See, Thomas was afraid of being stoned to death by the Jews. And if you go places with Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you go places with him, if you're involved in his works, if you experience his resurrection power, then you must die with Christ at the altar of repentance. I agree with Paul. He said in Galatians 2.20, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life that I now live in the flesh, right here, flesh and blood, the body that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ loves you. He loves you. And we must go with Christ. And we must die with Christ. When we do that, 
There will not be enough room in this building for all of the people that want some of that. Because we serve a resurrected king. A resurrected Lord. You see, life brings death. And the call to share the gospel is not an easy call. Thomas was right when he predicted that following Jesus into Judea would cost Jesus his life. And Jesus must have been aware that this great sign of release, the release of Lazarus from the dead, would cost him his own life. So are you willing to take the same kind of risks when God calls you to set others free? You know, this morning, I offer you an invitation. Each one of these points. Christ loves you. When you realize that, you come to a point of salvation. I invite you to come to Christ this morning. If you've never acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior, you need to do that this morning recognizing that he loves you so much that he gave his life so that you would not perish, but that you would have everlasting life. So I invite you to salvation. Christ loves you. Secondly, I would invite you to commitment. It takes a commitment to go with Christ. You cannot go with Christ and stay where you are. You actually have to move. I know. I know what it means to pack up and move. If you want to go with Christ, you have to move from where you are to where he is calling you to. So it's a commitment. It's an all-in commitment. And thirdly, I would say this. Surrender. To die with Christ. It's salvation. It's commitment. It's surrender. See, if you never surrender, you're never going to do what God calls you to do. Because when you surrender, what you are saying is, I give up my right to do whatever I want. And it's all about you, Lord. It's all about you. That's surrender. It's offering yourself in that place of servanthood, in that place where you just kneel before him and you say, Lord, you you may do with me whatever you choose. For life or for death, for sickness or for health, whatever it is, Lord, I am yours to do whatever you choose to do with. Whatever brings you glory. That's surrender. And when we do that, we're going to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this place, on this body, like we've never seen before. But it begins here, it begins today, and it begins with us. So I invite you for salvation, for a commitment of your life, for a complete surrender of your life.